Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. This is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this, and there's a lot of scientific research happening and an industry growing around the topic as we speak. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress in the future? On the new Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the new Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. I got to know Dr. Bronner's when I lived in Los Angeles and when I went shopping at Trader Joe's. I made sure to pick up some of the delicious peppermint soap that all of us were using. It was just such a California thing, which I loved, but there's more to it. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. And please check out the February 27th episode of the New Health Club to hear my interview with their CEO and world-renowned psychedelic therapy activist David Bronner as we discuss how psychedelics might heal Holocaust trauma. Robin Card Harris has the aura of your typical cool scientist and heads the psychedelic research group within the Center for Psychiatry at Imperial College London. He has designed a number of functional brain imaging studies with psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and DMT, plus a clinical trial of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Card Harris is the first person in the UK to have legally administered doses of LSD to human volunteers since the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1971. I talked to Robin about SSRIs and possible replacement with psychedelics in the near future. We're very excited to have, finally, 
Robin Card Harris on the podcast of the New Hearts Club, which is of course like um, kind of a superstar, it seems like, <laughs> of the, <laughs> the psychedelic movement. I was just, it was just so great because I found these pictures of you in, in I think it was Independent, where you were shot like this super cool scientist, like you were basically had it, this, the lead singer of a, of a rock band, like New Order or something. I think the article was, was talking about you being the first scientist after a very long time um, being allowed to research LSD again. So I think that was 2016. So, I mean, now we kind of four or five years fast forward. So maybe you can just talk a little bit how that time was was that were you like a weird person researching illegal drugs or was there already like a consciousness about this i'm not sure what year that article came out 2014 15 but uh yeah i mean so much has happened in the last five years um i guess like michael pollan's book was a inflection point when things seemed to take you know go up to another level um but uh Looking back to that point, we'd we were uh, just coming towards completing what would be the first ever modern brain imaging study of LSD, and that was kind of the focal point of the piece. And that's where they were trying to, you know, capture me and then and then uh, reflect on that. Um, and uh, yeah, um, things were very. Very different then. I guess that was the first article of note that at least I featured in. Um, and then I think, you know, not so long after that, we had things like the New Yorker article by Michael Pollan and a wave of, of things uh, uh, came after that. But, uh, yeah, it was a different different kind of time. So um, so the New Yorker article came out with Michael, where Michael Pollan wrote about you, and then that was basically the, the next level, right? I mean, I could imagine. Yeah, I guess the New York, Yorker article we featured in there, but it was much broader and, and uh, it was yeah, focusing a lot on the end-of-life uh, work, which uh, really captured people's um, awareness, as it should, um, relevant to us all. Um, and so, uh, I think that started to bring in more of, you know, polite society, the, the general public, uh, rather than appealing to the, to the old kind of clique and those in the know. Um, and, uh, I guess this is where we are now where, you know, you have, uh, the first program in the whoop series, Gwyneth Paltrow focusing on, uh, on psychedelics and and things appearing on Netflix all the time, new programs, have a good trip and midnight yeah. gospel and uh, and now I think Michael Pollan's book is going to be turned into something and there's a, yeah and it's uh, taking on a, a whole new new uh, level now. But I mean, is that something you enjoy? Is it something that makes you think, wow, this is good that it's kind of a there's going to be a different or very various languages around psychedelics besides the scientific one? Yeah, I don't know. Mixed feelings, really. Uh, it's, um, uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of fun and exciting. Um, but uh, it also makes for, 
more of a kind of manic feel uh and sometimes you just want to slow it down <laughs> yeah Yeah, but I mean, there was just this article in the Times, like presenting so-called game changers. So you are one of them, obviously. And it's like Robin Carhart Harris will actually change um, mental health care, like basically in no time. But it's like so-called game changers, like you in the field of mental health. It's like such an amazing pressure right now. I feel on scientists and of course also right now on virologists. Uh, that they might be, um, in two weeks, they will have figured out everything. And um, so then everything's fine. So, d I mean, I can imagine this must kind of enhance, like, the pressure on you and on your studies, like, so much. I mean, how do you kind of handle this kind of big expectations towards you? Uh, I don't think about it that much. I don't really, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, I don't really uh, uh, feel it. And... Um, Uh, and actually it's not, it's not really voiced that much. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, it's unlike with the, with, the, and also spread out, you know, it's now there's more and more people coming into this space. Um, so it's a shared responsibility, I suppose. Um, I guess, you know, I, I still want to feel like I can take risks because that's how one should operate I think at the cutting edge of a domain um, but equally I don't want to make mistakes because you know it's uh, what one doesn't want to fall you know when things are going well and and equally I don't, you know if I if I feel any pressure then um, I'm not going to be able to sort of relax and be creative and allow new ideas to percolate up if I feel like I have to search and find the next new thing then it's not going to work so just uh, to let it ha evolve naturally I actually sense that the the you know there's a broader world here now with psychedelic medicine and others are, are trying to perhaps go too quickly I, I as you know a kind of sociologist in a sense uh, um I find the, the, the social and cultural phenomenon interesting at this moment. And the fact that so much is uncertain as well, it's, it's, it's actually really fun to kind of watch in a way, as a, even though I'm immersed in it as a kind of observer, just to watch some of the antics as, you know, big raises are announced and new companies and all this kind of thing. And, uh, It's a, it's an interesting phenomenon, kind of, yeah, yeah, find it quite fun in a way. But I mean, so how did you get in touch with um, psychedelics in a way that you thought, okay, I have to immerse myself in this research for the next X, Y, and Z years? Well, you know, I was a teenager like everyone else and uh, exploring and such like, and, and without going into details, uh, Maybe that was my introduction. Um, and then academically, and, and maybe this is related, I was drawn to psychology, but depth psychology, you know. I guess in a sense, I uh, kind of wanted to work myself out a little bit, you know, understand myself better. And, um, and so I was drawn to Sigmund Freud and, uh, and that deeper, richer 
kind of psychology. And that's where I discovered psychedelics. You know, I discovered Stan Groff and Realms of the Human Unconscious. And that was, personally, that was an inflection point. That was a turning point. And then it was just like an obsession. It was a one-track mind that uh, this is what I, I, I had to do. And there was no question that anything was kind of going to get in the way, really. I, uh, my first moves were to write to Amanda Fielding at the Beckley Foundation and David Nutt. And I kind of leveraged, um, you know, the Beckley Foundation as potential funders of research I wanted to do to kind of... Uh, get my foot in the door with David, with David Nutt at the University of Bristol. And it kind of worked. I, I, I did my PhD on something not directly related, but it was a good introduction to the space. It was on the serotonin system, a kind of form of brain imaging with, with um, EEG, sleep recordings actually, and some dietary manipulation that, that alters serotonin functioning. I did this in MDMA users and healthy controls and so basically, my three and a half year PhD, four years roughly, uh, gave me an introduction to psychopharmacology, drugs in the brain, um, and the system that I would go on to study to this day, uh, what is it now, f- about 15 years later, uh, the serotonin system, and, but with a particular focus on, on psychedelics. Can you talk a little bit about the study you I think you finished in, in April at the Imperial College. Is that possible? Uh, yes, the, the depression trial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I'm, uh, that's um, been a work in progress, um, uh, I guess, since we were wrapping up our last trial, which um, actually, as bizarre to think, is, was, was wrapped up about five years ago now, published in 2016, Lancet Psychiatry. And... That was an introduction to um, psilocybin for depression. It was treatment-resistant depression. And um, I guess the value of that study was that it was a tough population. You know, it wasn't a, a, a vague diagnostic um, category. It was, it was depression and, you know, solid, quite severe and difficult to treat depression. And I, I guess... You know, one of the learnings from that study, uh, perhaps because it, of the nature of the sample where they were treatment resistant, meaning, you know, drugs hadn't worked very well for them, conventional drugs, uh, antidepressant drugs I'm talking about. And so they didn't think much of them. And then when they responded to psilocybin, they were like, this is just a world away from being on SSRIs. Um, and it was just a, a huge revelation and life turnaround second chance for many people and so that as you can imagine had a huge impact on everyone's thinking and I was of the view that uh, let's do something different next different to the rest and let's do something that really advances things on not just another depression trial with um, where we go head-to-head with a placebo. Um, why don't we go head-to-head with a, a leading drug treatment? And so that was a proposal I put together actually for a couple of grant-slash-fellowship applications to the 
UK Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust, um, which weren't successful. And so through philanthropy money, we were fortunately able to do the trial anyway and uh, started it about a year and a half ago, I think. I mean, it's been an incredible pace that the the team on the ground have gone at. They're absolute heroes, uh, Roz and, and the others, uh, Michelle, Ashley, Johnny, Roberta and Bruna managing it. They're just absolute stars. I know from managing the previous trial, it's blimmin' hard work and, and an emotional, you know... Uh, Wow, roller coaster. Um, so they've done an amazing job, and, and it, yes, it was finished in April, uh, actually, sort of eight, March slash April. Um, COVID uh, meant that we couldn't do the three final dosings, but that's three of like 195 or something dosing sessions. So it's it's really just a drop in the ocean. Um, Yes, analysing the results now. And, and just so listeners are clear, this is a head-to-head trial. It's uh, psilocybin therapy, two treatment sessions, three weeks apart, full doses, meaning um, quite high doses, 25 milligrams of psilocybin, pure psilocybin. Um, and there's the uh, usual psychological support with preparation and aftercare, the integration work. And the the uh, control condition, if you want, is um, six weeks of escitalopram, which is a leading, very selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI. People are, will have heard of Prozac, if nothing else. These are classic antidepressants uh, that have been around since sort of like the late 80s, I think, um, uh, and have dominated, you know, depression care ever since. Um, and uh, escitalopram is considered one of, you know, one of the best, I suppose, in terms of tolerability and uh, efficacy. Yet it's, it's not that great. You know, it has side effects and um, it's not that effective. You know, about half of people roughly don't respond. Um, uh, and so there's huge scope for improvement. And so that's why we went head to head and the initial findings are really exciting. I, I, I can't tell people exactly what they are before we publish because it can jeopardise publication. Um, it's being written up for, you know, the, the most prestigious um, medical journal. Um, but let's see how we get on. And the, but the results are, are remarkable. And I've said this elsewhere, so I think it's OK to say here, and and be somewhat vague, but um, something that can be overlooked uh, in um, depression research is the um, impact of a treatment on what what people call uh, patient relevant outcomes. And and you would think, well, shouldn't all outcomes be patient relevant, like a depression <laughs> rating scale? And uh, yes, of of course. But there are other things like quality of life not just feeling uh, a bit better um, so that, um, you know, the severity of your negative mood is, is lessened, but feeling actually rejuvenated, um, more connected uh, within oneself to other people, to a sense of meaning and purpose. 
that more kind of thorough, comprehensive recovery uh, is the kind of thing that psilocybin therapy seems to to do for people. Um, and I think I, I'm I can see this shining through in in the write up. Uh, that's the message that shines through for me when I look at these findings. I mean, the depression scores are pretty great too, but uh, the uh, these other side this other side of things, sexual functioning as well, you know, a side effect of SSRI is that um, uh, there are aspects of sexual dysfunction that you see as a side effect, um, that we're not seeing anything like that with psychedelic therapy, if anything, maybe a bit in, in the other direction. And so an emotional response, um, people feeling emotionally re-engaged, which isn't something that you see with SSRIs, if anything, there might be a bit of a blunting of one's emotional range and lability. So it's very exciting. Yeah, and that's where we are right now. Publication, you know, you're in the lap of the gods, the reviewers, the editor, uh, when you submit, and we're a good way off from submission. And so I don't know, you know I say to people something like, September, October, you know, maybe November. Okay. Yeah, but who knows? Because it goes into review and, and it can get rejected. Then it goes to another journal and yeah. What I was wondering is, I mean, you I mean also with these trials you did before, I mean, when you have people who undergo this very high dose of psilocybin and like you say, or like you have also some quotes on, on the website at the Imperial College, how their life kind of, really can dramatically change after undergoing something like this. I mean, even in, in a place like synthesis where you don't come in as a depressed person, even then, if you take it as, let's say, to answer a big life question and you come out of this as, you know, maybe a different person or like you go a totally different path, which happened in my case also, How is the how is the response of people you actually had in the study? What do they do? They get in touch with you and tell you, by the way, this has happened, and um, I just I don't know. I moved to Australia, <laughs> and now I'm a farmer, or like whatever. Is, is there is there like a communication afterwards that you where you see how people's life has changed and and. Yeah. Is there anything like that? I mean, it's a very personal uh, and, and deep experience. And um, people feel the, the need uh, to have that connection. And uh, pretty much on the ground for the, the first study and, and did all of the sessions um, and got to know all of the patients pretty well. All of the people pretty well. They don't like understand it understandably they don't like being referred to as patients and so you you watch you watch their lives change sadly you often see them relapse um treatment resistant depression you know it comes with the territory so that's sad and then they're like why i you know why can't i have this thing the only thing that's helped me um and in order to get it am i going to have to do something illegal or go off to you know maybe a slightly dubious retreat in I don't know, the Amazon or the Netherlands. Um, and uh, so that's difficult because we can't endorse that. Um, it's separate from us um, and we can't provide another treatment. 
experience. So that's a a difficult situation. Now, in the current trial, I I haven't been on the ground because, uh, well, because we've got a great team and it made sense to kind of empower them and let them take it on and and do it, uh, you know, headed by people who are clinicians. Um, I think that's worked well. So I haven't got to know the individuals in this present trial as well at all. Um, I've met one or two and and briefly. I did share the stage with one um, uh, and his, a couple of the the therapists from the trial, Michelle Baker-Jones and and Ashley. It was a remarkable event. Um, It was at the Conduit Club in London and um, he told the room in a very brave way about the nature of his depression and how this was um, kind of last chance saloon. It was this or, you know, it was, of course, people, it's more common than not that people are thinking about suicide when they're thoroughly depressed. And so that was a very real possibility for him when in his depressive episode. And so he he's basically said this saved his life, you know, and uh, it was very moving uh, to, to hear that and to see him doing well. And, and that, that's, again, something remarkable, you know, people who uh, have been, who, who couldn't really dream of standing on a stage and telling a room full of strangers about their mental health are doing it after the psilocybin therapy and doing it with, you know, a kind of equanimity, a calm, long way away from any kind of worrying sort of hypermania or something. Um, there's, there's really a sort of a calm there. And it's an amazing thing to see. Like, like you say, people who have already experienced it would actually do like the, the second round if you have that experience once. But I mean, I think this is one of the big questions that um, also in... Uh, I mean, we get like a couple of emails on during the day in the meantime, where people always basically ask the same question. When can I do this? Where can I do this? Or how can I be part of a study? Because um, like you say, um, some of them are, well, I tried everything and I just now I keep reading about these things and about these great studies and that it might be a real big solution for everybody. But of course you can't really do it right now. So, and I think that's, I mean, also in these last couple of weeks and all these conferences and talks, it's always this thing that you basically, everybody talks about it like, yeah, and you just go to Imperial College, you just do it and it's great, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still like not Possible, and and even if you would apply for a study, I mean, there might be in the meantime probably like ten thousand people applying for this. I could imagine, or maybe even more. So, how do you think this really big challenge could be handled, or what? What? How do you think? What is a good thing to to suggest? Yeah. So basically, you know, in in most of the West, uh, um, psychedelics are illegal in the highest bracket of of harm according to UN scheduling and, and national scheduling and so um, people can't access them and and you know they're 
um, it's a criminal act to to take and to possess um, the substances, and so they look for legal loopholes where there might be pockets in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, where they could take magic truffles, and there's a truffle industry set up there, uh, and similar thing in 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 um, uh, countries, you know. Uh, where the Amazon is, um, where they can go and have uh, legal ayahuasca experiences. And there, there are a few other examples. And then there are a, a few examples where the legislation is kind of relaxed. And then you have the decriminalization initiatives, but though that's not legalization. So anyway, you, you have these loopholes, but they're not ideal. And and so you have a situation where someone of, of you know, maybe limited re- economic resources, financial resources, uh, can't go traveling like that and certainly can't under these present conditions. Nah, nobody, yeah. No. And so um, what do you do? And and um, it's a tricky situation because it, it can attract people to perhaps riskier ways of doing this. Certainly the trials, there aren't enough um, in order, like, it just... The, the size of the demand to supply is ridiculous. Um, when people think, oh, I can get this treatment by um, volunteering for a trial, first of all, there's, there's very restrictive criteria on certain trials. Like the COMPASS trial, for example, I think is failure of just two medications. And so either side of that, you can't get in. You have depression, you think you could get in, but, but you can't. So... You have these very selective and constrained studies, and so that's that's no solution to this issue. So, how we resolve it, I don't know, because one one message is we're just going to have to be patient and let the research research happen and all the testing happen, so that the scientific uh, and medical community and regulators can make a informed decision about whether to license this and then everything changes and opens up and then there are all sorts of questions about training and such like so it's a very difficult situation one one solution that i'm uh suggesting at the moment and i've i've written on this and it's going to go to review um as of today i think in a in in the a solid uh, very solid um psychiatry journal is uh, the suggestion to set up pragmatic trials, which are different to the kind of trials that are being done to convince regulators like the FDA, the EMA in Europe, to license psilocybin therapy as a legal uh, medical intervention for a particular disorder. In this case, it will be treatment-resistant depression, at least in the case of, of COMPASS and their work um and so if you were to set up a pragmatic trial and you had resources to do it which is of course you know a major uh determining factor then you could potentially set up a trial with broader inclusion criteria than a very constrained regulatory trial and you could perhaps have broader criteria on the dosing uh, protocol, meaning perhaps you could have more potential dosing sessions, 
more of a potential range of dosing sessions. And you're treating a, a trial like that more like a, um, a way to get a head start on understanding what this will look like when slash if it does get licensed. Because otherwise you create this kind of artificial condition to do the trials, to do the regulatory trials, these double-blind randomized control trials, uh, with very constrained parameters like one or two dosing sessions, fixed dose, very selective population. And then it gets through and all of a sudden clinicians want to, and patients want it for this, that, and, and you know, a lot of different things. And, and clinicians are thinking, well, will I give this off-label and you have a situation where there are a lot of unanswered questions and a new treatment that's licensed and you have a problem, you know. And a similar thing kind of arose with medicinal cannabis where it, it got through the system without arguably sufficient research and research of, of, of you know, the kind of required quality and nature um, to be able to address all of the questions that patients would have when they come to their doctor and say, well, could cannabis help? And the doctor's there, you know, thinking, I don't know, because we don't really, that question hasn't really been addressed by research. So what I'm suggesting is, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but it's, it's better than the present situation, I think, would be to set up some kind of, you know, multi-site pragmatic trial with broad inclusion criteria, similar things are done in in other aspects of of medicine, like in oncology, where you have these um, these master protocols that allow you to treat different cancers with mm-hmm. the same treatment, like usually a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why not psychiatry? And why not psychiatry when there seems to be so much overlap between psychiatric disorders anyway? you know, whether it's OCD, eating disorders, depression, anxiety. Um, there's so much overlap and trauma. And um, and so, you know, logic suggests and intuition uh, suggests that there, there may be some kind of nucleus here that, that's common to, to these different expressions of psychological suffering. And that's the intuition that's coming up when looking at psychedelic therapy, that it seems, looking at the initial small studies that are being done and also the broader context, the history, and the broader context right now when people self-medicate all over the world with psychedelics, um, it seems to be that this treatment, if you want, this intervention is working for a lot of different things. At least it seems that way. Um, And so therefore, maybe that's its future. And if that's its future, could we set up some kind of research platform now that allows us to test that without it being this little bitty study here and this little one over here and this one over here? Why not try and have a bigger study? I mean, there's all sorts of challenges with that idea, but I I don't think it's impossible at all. No, because I mean, there. I mean, in, again, in the last couple of weeks, there were already so many articles, even from Forbes or Fortune, not necessarily scientific publications, that already saying, okay, there will be like a huge wave of PTSD for a lot of people after 
the lockdown or after, let's say, this year, which, as you know, comes always rather later sometimes as a result than in like in being in the situation. It seems like um, the need for these, what, what you just said, will be even increased dramatically after the next couple of months, probably. So. Which is sad, isn't it? And, and it, it, it sort of amplifies the issue. Um, already there's evidence of a uh, exaggeration to what many call a current mental health crisis in terms of uh, prescription rates of antidepressants have spiked up over 20%. And that I heard a report about that like two or three weeks ago. So if anything, it's, it might be getting worse. Um, and yeah, and there's a lot of, there's all sorts of uh, triggers, you know, with um, anxiety, uncertainty, loneliness, um, social pressures, domestic pressures, grief. I mean, it's, it's a heady mix. Sure that, you know, for some lucky people, and, and I would include myself in there, the lockdown has been manageable. But uh, for many others, it's, I imagine it's been a living hell, you know, so. Um. Yeah, and also, I mean, I feel even in like little moments, you can already feel that in the lockdown, you were like, okay, this is how it is. You just focus on your desk or something. But then now that it's becoming a little kind of, I mean, as, as, at least here in Berlin, a little more relaxed, it's like a lot of people are very confused about how they're supposed to feel. Should they open up again? Should they not? Should they stay in the same situation? So I think like emotionally, it's a very big challenge for, because you never had that experience also how to react to something like this. But, um, but I mean, for those who maybe have not heard so much about using or like not using LSD, but but researching LSD, you had this great expression uh, that it's a metaphor that it's like shaking up a, a snow globe in your brain. <laughs> Maybe you can um, explain that a little bit. The the backstory there is that um, I guess initially there was a bit of intuition when thinking about how psychedelics work in the brain and, and looking at some of our early results that there's a kind of this is very loosely speaking, a kind of chaos in the brain. Um, and uh, that might be one way to describe what's going on in terms of changes in brain activity when you're under a psychedelic. I mean, it's a very simplistic model, as models often are, and there's much more to it than that. But it's, it, you know, to this day, it's looking like a solid principle. At least it's it's an important component of the action that brain activity does become dysregulated under psychedelics and particularly in the cortex which is the massively expanded aspect of our brains as human beings and you know in order to have precise cognition we need our cortical activity to be organized and it organizes itself throughout our development um, until you know, it's pretty finessed in, in terms of the, the nature of its organization. So throwing in a psychedelic is like, is like, you know, regressing it back to some older mode where the cortical activity isn't so organized. 
it's quite scrambled. And so it was a loose metaphor, but I think a useful one because you shake a snow globe and it goes from order to disorder and then it settles again. Um, and something like that is happening with psychedelics. There is more to the story and there's a kind of uh, known unknown in a sense. Like one key one for me is that psychedelic means mind revealing. People have these insights under psychedelics and they can also have these very vivid recollections of things like trauma that doesn't immediately strike one as chaos in the brain it's more like a liberation of something um, something that's been covered up suppressed and so that's a quest for me going forwards and actually that was a key question for me getting into this space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so introduced to you know realms of the human unconscious by Stan Groff and this principle that psychedelics allow for the um, the release of unconscious material that's been suppressed, buried um, because it's painful or it's kind of too much information that, that's needed in any given moment. Um, and so how do you account for that when you look in the brain? You know, we can describe the psychology of it till we're blue in the face. Um, but what about the underlying mechanics? And, and I, to this day, that remains an elusive um, goal. But I can see how we can get to it. Um, uh, it's not easy. Uh, and the other thing is to say that if you have a model that's that's like shaking a snow globe um, and you think about how it resets afterwards, I think there's something important there that shouldn't be glossed over. Neither should people think, oh, all I need to do is get hold of a psychedelic and reset my brain. That would That's a very misleading message. However, in terms of the mechanics, I do think that there is value in that model of you take a system that has calibrated in a particular way maybe because it was a defensive response to a painful situation like trauma Mm -hmm. and so you you create some defense mechanisms like dissociation which will that, that might work in that moment you freeze the freeze response um play dead you know but if that defense mechanism that might have worked in that moment then endures, it, it's not adaptive, it's maladaptive, and that then defines your pathology. And so you have a system that's, that's set like a jelly in a mold in an in a abnormal way. It's maladaptive, it's not serving you, it's not helping, you're depressed, you have flashbacks, you have panic attacks, whatever. Um, and so we need to you know do something about that situation so you take that system and it's very loose metaphor like i said so let's not get carried away in thinking it applies absolutely but you shake that system up introduce some chaos for a time limited period a psychedelic trip Um, you do that in a very supportive context and then afterwards with psychological holding you know you allow the system to settle again, to recalibrate uh, into a healthier configuration. So it settles again into an organization, 
but it settles into a, a mode of functioning that is, is like a recalibration. No longer is it this abnormal um, way that it's set, maladaptive way, but there's like, a, there's like an equanimity, uh, a rebalancing of things. And I do think that that's a useful model, working model uh, going forward. That's always the, the main question that most people would ask, um, what actually happens in your brain <laughs> at this moment? But I mean, one, one last question, what I find also very interesting, what I think about a lot is that um, if you read articles about LSD and psilocybin, it's always kind of the, the tone in psilocybin would be more like emotional. People would up, open up more on, on an emotional level or like feeling also more and LSD would be more like very visual. I have to say I had exactly that experience because I did a, a guided LSD um, trip and a guided psilocybin trip and I saw very different things. So could you talk a little bit about how, let's say, I mean, if you, some people say LSD is more like a male orientated thing and psilocybin would be more like a female orientated thing. That's what I, I read actually one article who actually, yeah, tried to come up with the theory that it's rather too, it's like, like a, almost like a gender question regarding psychedelics. It's important to say we haven't done an LSD therapy study. We've done an LSD brain imaging study. We've done psilocybin brain imaging studies. But we did those studies with IV intravenous uh, drug and in brain scanners um, and in healthy volunteers who had some previous experience of psychedelics. So it was quite a different thing to taking a, you know, clearly vulnerable population of depressed people and giving them psilocybin therapy. Um, and I, I would say don't underestimate the uh, role of psychology in determining some of these things that you describe. So, for example, uh, priming, uh, you know, very well, um, you know, characterized effect in, in psychology is going to have an exaggerated, there's good reasons to think it will have an exaggerated influence in the context of a psychedelic trip because people are hypersuggestible, they're very context-sensitive, And uh, even afterwards, you know, in terms of making sense of the experience, it's quite easy to influence the, the way that they understand it and, and frame it. And so, you know, things like these uh, God encounter experiences, and I would encourage people to slightly take some of that with a pinch of salt in terms of how it's framed and the influence of, of psychological priming, even if it's an implicit thing. Um, I think this is a really important question going forwards, is how do we frame this? Because there is a perhaps a danger that it be framed in a, in, in a particular way that, that people then want to kind of dominate the... Um, the picture and I, I would hope that it be in a sense as much as possible framework free that psychedelic therapy can be framework free there, there can be psychological support but there's no need um, to apply any kind of narrative to it like therefore I, I have this experience I 
it feels like I'm in the presence of a divine creator, um, a spirit that that runs through everything and is beyond, you know, material. Uh, therefore, I now I don't know believe in God or whatever. I just think the the need to close the issue, you know, the uncertainty, if you want, by saying therefore now I know that God exists or something like that, is not needed. And similarly, I would I would probably encourage uh, that we we not move towards like characterizing uh, LSD as male and, and psilocybin as female, for example. Similar things are done with ayahuasca, where people say, oh, ayahuasca is clearly female, it's female energy, it's, it's mother ayahuasca, um, pachamama and all that kind of thing. But I think people are not realizing there the influence of priming and cultural context on, on that flavor of experience and almost reading it into the substance. I think there's a lot of that kind of thing that people read in some kind of magic into the substance itself. Like, let the medicine show you the answer. And it's, it's, my point is that it's projected onto the medicine. Like, the answer's held within the medicine. And, and I think that's, that's, that's wrong. That's like a kind of animistic projection. It, there's no reason to, to, to actually think that. Rather that this is a, a, a kind of see the medicine, the substance as a key unlocking a system and the system holds insight and realisation within itself um, but we don't need to project it onto, onto the medicine. So basically it's like, it's like a really good modern tool for the future. Massively. As a tool to understand the mind and the mind and behavior being more or less everything that, that a living creature and particularly a human being is on the earth. And now during this Anthropocene where we're shaping the biosphere in a frightening way, then what an opportunity, what an important uh, opportunity to use this tool and, and use it right. Well, we could go on for hours, of course. <laughs> But thank you. That was super interesting. Well, thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I hope uh, your listeners find it interesting. I'm sure they will. <laughs>